0: Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 494, March 17, 2022, COVID and the research community with Kim Fortune, Lori Peek, and Jason Ludwig and I am going to bring them on screen right now and introduce them to you. Although if you've been following COVID calls, these are not strangers to you. Kim Fortune is a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. Her research and teaching focus on how people in different geographic and organizational contexts understand environmental problems, uneven distributions of environmental health risks, developments in the environmental health sciences, and Factors That Contribute to Disaster Vulnerability." She's the author of Advocacy After Bhopal, Environmentalism Disaster, and this appeared in 2001. Aysen Ludwig is a PhD student in the Department of Science and Technology Studies. His research interests converge around race, disaster, and the possibility of a radical politics of science and technology. Lori Peek is professor in the Department of Sociology and director of the Natural Hazards Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. She's written and edited several books on marginalized populations and disasters, and she leads the National Science Foundation funded Converge initiative. Lori, Jason and Kim, good to see you. Thanks for coming back on COVID calls. Thank you. Thank you. Kim, I mangled the name of your amazing book, Can You Please Correct Me, on Advocacy After Bhopal, but what's the subtitle?
1: Disaster, wait, Disaster, wait, Environmentalism, Disaster, New uh, Global Orders.
0: Okay. I left the global part out of there. I'm sorry. I should I should shouldn't have that totally down. Um, so it's so great to see you all. And um, I want to just jump right in to a conversation about research. And we're going to talk about research in many different scales here today. Um, but I, I wanted to start with, with a more personal approach and ask how this disaster has shaped, um, moved uh, your own research, if it has. And Jason, I'd like to start with you on that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd say the COVID pandemic has had a huge, profound impact on the kind of work that I do and that I want to do. I'd say I entered graduate school uh, with a really clearly defined project, which was I was interested in how economists and community activists were producing knowledge about pollution in the Rust Belt uh, in the sort of post-war period. Um, a couple of things happened. I, I lost some interest with it, uh, but then also the pandemic struck and, and I became involved in a project here at Cornell that was looking at expertise uh, across different nations during the pandemic. And I came across a problem that really fascinated me, which was the CDC and Health and Human Services in the US. Uh, They were really concerned about the lack of certain kinds of data about the pandemic. And, And this became a huge problem, right? What kind of data do we need, particularly to address racial disparities in the pandemic? Uh, What kind of data system do we want to have to make us able to respond to this and future kinds of pandemics? Um, And what kinds of protections will be inbuilt into the system, right? To make sure that, say, data that was produced for a public health purpose wasn't then repurposed for law enforcement purposes per se or for other reasons that we might not want our, our health data used for. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that later, but what that opened up for me was really questions about how uh, the rise of a sort of data solutionist approach to social problems in the U.S., mm-hmm. right, across a wide range of crises, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's perceived crises of crime and within law enforcement, uh, economic crises as well, and how different data practices shape social order and particularly racial order right how we know and try to uh, manage racial inequality across a wide variety of fields so that's the direction that my dissertation has now gone in since that uh, taking a historical approach to that question and this is all a product of things that arose throughout uh, the early months of the pandemic
0: just to linger with that for a second, uh, I mean, is it your sense that the kinds of institutions you're interested in have become even more data hungry during the pandemic? I mean, it, it seems to me it's a time of constricting resources and, you know, harder for people to do you know the work in the settings that they're used to, but they've become greedier for data.
2: Yeah, I don't know if it was I'd necessarily say greedier for data, but I'd say that data practices have transformed in a lot of ways. Hmm whereas you know in the 1960s and 1970s some of these data systems that I look at back then there was a lot of focus on creating really particular practices for making managing and moving data right that were specific to whichever crisis you'd want to respond to so like one thing i look at is the unemployment crisis and there are really sort of nuanced sensibilities about how you describe an unemployed person and how you produce data about their barriers to employment um, in a way that can address this national unemployment crisis. And the change that really interests me is there's less attention to these really specific practices around creating data and more attention to enabling flows of data across different systems, right? And there's a whole marketplace and industry and a really profitable industry Mm. That's, that's arisen to address these problems. And you know this dates back to as, at least as far back as September 11th and the, the securitization of disaster response and data management in the US, right? And this need to, or this perceived need to move data around from different systems really quickly to respond to diverse kinds of crises. Um, and what we see now, or it's kind of the byproduct of that move in the early 2000s, but we see companies that really specialize in this kind of work. So one that I look at is Palantir, uh, who manages, uh, health and human services, uh, HHS protect system, which is this public data hub. But, you know, when you have systems and industries that are really specialized in moving data, Then you have some of these questions that I alluded to earlier, right? Like Palantir contracts a lot with uh, Homeland Security, for example, providing uh, information on undocumented immigrants. And so if you have a company that's involved in both managing health data and managing border protection data, uh, how does that sow perhaps distrust in the system? And yeah, so I think this move towards enabling flows of data. That's, that's really what I think has crucially changed.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that, Laurie. Let me bring you in. Uh, not only, you, I mean, you're sort of a manager of a, of a disaster research center, so I don't know how you have any time to do any research of your own, but um, please tell us, you know, how has COVID shaped your, your own approaches, the kinds of questions that you're asking in your own work?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And Scott, it is just so good to see you and just thank you for the extraordinary archive that you have built over these last two years through COVID calls and what an honor it is to to be on right now. And with Jason and Kim. So thank you. And um thank you for this question. So I you're absolutely right, given the different hats that I wear in my academic life um, to answer this question about how COVID has shaped my own research. I sort of have a, a couple of entree points to that. So one is related to children and the impact of COVID on children. And so one of the major projects I was working on just prior to the onset of the pandemic was related to children and cumulative disaster exposure Or what does it mean for children's lives when they are exposed to multiple acute onset collective disaster events that disrupt their own lives, their families' lives, their communities? And what does that mean? And so I was really um, working with one of my wonderful students on a project looking at children along the Gulf Coast, who by the time of their 18th birthday had been exposed to five or more large communal level traumas in the form of hurricanes, flooding the BP oil spill and so forth. And so one of the big things that COVID obviously has done is it's added a whole other layer of of trauma on top of uh, the children's lives, children that I've been studying, but also just children more generally that I'm concerned with their lives and livelihoods. And so this idea of um, cumulative disaster impact and what does it mean? In an age of pandemic, uh, for children who are experiencing not only uh, multiple natural hazards events, but also technological hazards, as Kim's going to bring into the conversation shortly, undoubtedly, um, but also now with the pandemic. So that's sort of one thread that I'm thinking a lot about. But then, as you alluded to, as a leader of the Natural Hazards Center, the pandemic has also raised all kinds of questions about what does this mean in terms of research in our community? Mm-hmm. What does this mean for his natural hazards researchers and technological disaster researchers who are now thinking about, again, the, the cumulative impact of natural hazards, technological disasters, perhaps willful mm-hmm. human caused disasters, and then on top of it, a, a pandemic. So what does that mean for how we define disaster and think about disaster in our community? How is it stretching the bounds of disaster definitions? How is it shifting our community in terms of the methods that we use? So a whole line of work that I've been engaged in the last several years is related to interdisciplinary methods, theories, and approaches to doing disaster research. And so I think the pandemic has brought about new and novel approaches for doing disaster research as we're all a part of right now, mm-hmm. because COVID calls is generating this extraordinary, one of a kind archival data set. Um, and so that's kind of another thread. And then just the last thing I'll say here is uh, also a thread in my own work is related to convergence and how do we encourage convergence research that is deeply interdisciplinary, problem-focused, and also solutions-oriented. And so um, really looking carefully at how has our community converged, uh, both to bring in Jason's Mm. expertise around the data that we're collecting and the ways we're collecting it and the ways that we're coming together across disciplinary boundaries to do this work. So those are some of the the places where my mind has been, but I'm just thankful for the question. Thankful to be here. I it's a lot answer. Thank you.
0: Uh, you bet. And I should have said at the outset, we have some real COVID calls veterans here. I think Lori, you have this is your fifth time on COVID calls. What extraordinary generosity! And um, Kim has hosted hosted a a week. Um, at a time when I didn't think I could do any more COVID calls, so uh, it just I should have said that at the outset. My thanks to you. Can I? I just want to linger for one second, Lori. Um, talking about children and accumulated uh, disaster accumulation and stress, what models do you have to work with there? I mean, are we talking about, or, or are there models? Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of you know models that might come out of you know stress, abuse, you know, the kinds of, you know, psychological models to understand children who undergo, um, you know, serial um, traumas. I haven't ever, I'm not familiar with literature that helps us understand it at a larger sort of societal scale.
3: Yeah, yes. Thank you for asking that. And your where you started was absolutely right that the ACEs or the adverse childhood experiences model is coming out of psychology and medicine is really sort of the best Uh, in some ways, the best available model for thinking about that that accumulation and cumulative disaster impact. However, ACEs, when you look at it, um, sort of, I think, the different kind of scale that we as disaster researchers, we're working at that collective or that communal scale and trying to understand what does it mean when the entire community is disrupted. And so ACEs historically has been sort of much more looking at like the individual child and has the individual child experience the checklist of adverse childhood experiences. And so ACEs is, is highly informative, but kind of the level we were trying to work at was like ACEs plus. And Uh so is the child experiencing these adverse experiences personally, but then also has their community, their family, their school also been disrupted multiple times because of these communal level traumas? And so I think it's kind of that both end. And you're right, Scott, that Luna, Luna Muhammad, my graduate student who was working on this as a thesis, and it's just absolutely fantastic. One of the things that we found when we delved into the literature, there is not a lot of literature because the disaster research literature continues to largely, although this is changing, thankfully, to really look at individual disasters, do that case study approach, right? Sure. So we're Katrina, or we're Sandy, or we're Maria, or we're Bhopal, and we're looking at that disaster because those disasters have been so enormous and so disruptive, but now we're living in this era of extremes, so what about when there's a Bhopal plus a pandemic Huh. Plus a flood, you know, and so it's really I think we do need new models and new frameworks to figure out what does this mean when when particular places are repetitively struck by disaster, but also when people who may not be in the same place are also experiencing this accumulation of trauma. Thank you.
0: OK, thanks for that. Um, Kim, great to see you. Let me bring you in on this Um Uh, you know, I lose track. I talk to you pretty frequently and seemingly almost in between every time I talk to you, you have added another, um, you know, research project into your, into what you're working on. So probably you have something I haven't heard yet. Um, But uh, just to come back to the original question, how has COVID, you know, reshaped the questions you're asking or opened up new areas that you want to work in?
1: Important question. And um, I want to follow Jason and Lori and just thanking you for having us here, but also just for the incredible accomplishment of, of the COVID calls over the last two years. And it adds to uh, the data that we can work with um, in figuring out what our methods and politics should be going forward. Um, I think I want to answer at a, a kind of high level to start. And I think, by emphasizing how watching the COVID pandemic unfold, we've just seen stunning incapacity to govern at all scales, across scales and across systems you know, technical, um, technical systems, atmospheric systems, health systems. And so and importantly, the incapacity of people to see themselves within processes and structures of shared governance which I think contributes to the extraordinary animosity and partisan um, splits that we see today. And so one consequence of this, and I, I will point out that that uh, recognition of the fundamental incapacities of our systems of stewardship and governance, certainly not new to disaster researchers, but I think it's um You know, it's really kind of settled us in that space in a way that it's the space within which we work. And so two two elements I'd like to point to coming from that is it's deepened my concerns with the double binds of methodological nationalism. Nations are the places that have governed the pandemic or failed to govern. Um, They operate public health systems. They operate educational systems. And yet, clearly, organizing and thinking in terms of the nation as a unit of um, life and method is extraordinarily um, problematic and insufficient. Um, Another double bind I want to point to, and uh, Jason laid ground for this, is the double binds of the data we need to characterize and respond to these systems, because there's a data glut and a data fetish today, but there's also extraordinary data gaps, and often it's data gaps about crossing systems. So the Jason's concerns with data flows is a, a really important research focus. And so, for example, understanding if we return to the Gulf Coast where Lori took us, and imagine extraordinarily built-out petrochemical s- sector. With accelerated production because of the shale gas boom, with accelerated risk of system shutdowns because of extreme weather, with de- declining um, capacity to run the plants because of COVID, you really do have a perfect storm of risk that we simply are not looking at as a, in a, in a holistic way, and so this in turn and so. The question of what kind of data do we need to know, for example, if facilities have um, hardened their, their toxic waste sites so that when they're hit by a storm, it doesn't contaminate the local water supply. Right now, we don't have a way to, to know or hold to account that kind of system readiness. And so that puts us in the double bind of surveillance. I mean, this is, this is invoked a need for surveillance. Surveillance that has uh, produced harm as well as produced kind of care. And so um, figuring out how we need to be on high observational call um, in a way that doesn't reproduce the ways that data has been used to entrench category schemes, uh, racial hierarchies, etc. cetera. So it's a it's a fraught sp- space um, and this I want to then in turn points to the question of what kind of knowledge infrastructure do we need to work in that space? Right. What kind of data systems, but also what kind of educational programs and schooling systems, you know, from adult education to our children? I mean, I think we need to think about what kind of knowledge we need to characterize, much less effectively respond and, and hopefully reach for. Uh, just transition, a transition away from systems that so systematically produce the, the cascading harms we're talking about.
0: Um, Could just pause there for a second? Because, you know, Kim, you helped facilitate in the fall um, a series of uh, discussions that were really cases from different places around, around the world that were um, dealing with environmental injustice. And I wanted, could you reflect on that also just for a moment, because I think it speaks very well to issues that were raised both by Jason and by Lori. And it also speaks to your you know, first problem you identified around sort of nationalism and being stuck within national frames, because that's a lot of times how da- data is collected and aggregated and how governance works. But then we're facing a pandemic and also climate change and everything else that forces us out of that frame. I thought that those discussions were really generative, and although that they were that COVID was hanging over all of it. And it's it's one of the reasons I wanted to have the three of you together. There is this sense in which even if you're not doing COVID work, it's providing some ligament. It's it's bringing some things together, often in ways that I can't fully put my, my finger on. And I don't know if it's just attention, new sources of funding, but um, people are making connections in ways that I hadn't quite seen before across cases. So I, I wanted to give you a chances to say a little bit about that initiative, because I thought it was really provocative?
1: So the initiative we're referring to, we've called the Environmental Justice Global Record Project, and it's a project that's involved um, young student researchers and more senior researchers distributed around the world. And our aim there is to build a set of case studies, very expansively imagined, of environmental injustice in particular settings. Settings where the, the kind of figure, the kind of hazard that kind of um, gets the attention, sometimes is singular—a a particular uh, industrial spill, for example, that ruins livelihoods for generations. Um, on the other hand, I think part of the methodological challenge is to do context as much as we do focus, where the surrounds of whatever you're focus on gets as much of our analytic attention. And I'll say that this is, um, runs up against um, the kind of methodological sharpness that we're habituated to one. And I think Lori referred to with the focus on kind of characterizing the individual child. Because when you start saying the child needs to be understood in its surrounds, you get a lot of entropy. Things don't hold together in the neat journal article like they used to and so the way that and so we use the term case study we're well aware of how the case study has been a container of delimitation like the business case study in which something like the Bhopal disaster has been captured has largely pushed things off screen rather than continually been updated to to create the grounds in which the figure sits and so I think that's the challenge of that project and the, the way that people in different settings are working in very different political contexts. We have, as you know, a set of cases in uh, Korea. And when we learn about how they're characterizing sites of environmental injustice there, we learn to ask different questions about the sites we're studying on the U.S. Gulf Coast um, in, in other contexts around the world. And so, and I think being driven empirically like that, where Jason asks a good question and I run home and ask it in my um, own work, is also a way to skirt the kind of fatigue of our theoretical frameworks. We so desperately need fresh theoretical frameworks, but it's hard to get there thinking within the frames that are so deeply entrenched. And so, using um, side by side and comparative and collaborative empirical work as a way to advance new theory, I think is um, we we've seen a, even a greater need for that within the pandemic because the, the limits of extant theoretical frames has just been um, so clear.
0: take one second just to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls and we're talking about research in the age of COVID with Jason Ludwig, Lori Peek, and Kim Fortune. Um, Lori, you got us thinking about um, time, chronicity, accumulation. I really appreciate that. I want to come at this in a slightly different way and think about compound compound disasters, cascading disasters that are happening in an acute way. And we've seen that even in these last two years, uh, you know, climate change and climate change impacts, obviously, the pandemic, the multiple different weather-related disasters, volcano, a war. I'll stop there. I mean, we could keep going. Um, can you assess our ability to do sense-making across, I mean, usually compound disaster research, as I've studied it, is often sort of brings two things together. <laughs> and, and early in the pandemic, it was worrying a lot about the the, as it should have been, pandemic in hurricane season. And there was a lot of writing about that, a lot of quite good journalism about that. And it was important. We needed it. But we've got four or five or six things happening simultaneously. How do you think about that? And how do you think the research community has been adapting to that, if they have?
3: Yeah, thank you. And I I actually, I'm going to to answer that, I'm actually going to pick up on something that, that Kim said and, and Jason as well about our systems and whether our systems are ready for this. And so one of the things that I think has been so clearly revealed as we have experienced these um, compound and accumulating disasters in the U.S., let's even just take hurricane on top of hurricane that um, sort of our, our systems are set up as if these are discrete events. And so funding's going to come in for recovery from Hurricane A. But then what about when Hurricane B happens two weeks after Hurricane A and our systems are set up to say, I'm sorry, we can't help you with Hurricane B because we're still focused on Hurricane A. And so that alone is unfolding right now in the U.S. Gulf Coast of the United States. Um, And then on top of it, we have flooding, we have pandemic, we have, you know, we have petrochemical issues that are unfolding all over the place, enduring environmental justice issues. And so I think to answer that, Scott, and and I think to draw together Kim's really brilliant remarks about just sort of the fatigue of our our theoretical frameworks in the disaster field, our theoretical and our methodological work is so closely tied with our practical, our our systems and our frameworks in emergency management and so forth, that I think we are starting to see the, just the incredible stretching of all of those systems, our research systems, our emergency management systems, we're seeing the power and the incredible limitations of those systems unfold before our eyes. And so that's where kind of with your great question, whereby my mind went with that. But I see Kim and Jason their heads nodding. And I'm, I'm really curious what they have to say about this question, because I am just, I'm intrigued by it intellectually. As a human being, I am so deeply concerned by the question, like, like can they even express in words how concerned I am. And so I'd actually, I'd love to hear what, what Jason and Kim have to say to your wonderful question. Thank you for allowing me to lead off on that one.
0: Jason let me bring you in on that again sometimes when i talk about people about, the, about compound disaster you reach a point where you almost feel like you're describing science fiction and then it just sort of you can it's very easy to get into a, a sort of a, a climate you know just this this real the, depre- the depression of people do experience the sort of you know feeling of futility and so i mean i think there is there are maybe quite good reasons to pull disasters apart and investigate them clinically separately. Mm -hmm. Um, There are good social scientific reasons to do that. Obviously, their funders like to see that because that helps shape policy. Um, So I do, I mean, I'm just building on what Lori's saying. I think it's incredibly important to do this compound work, but at the same time, I I also understand why we haven't done it probably.
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, this is really a problem that I've been grappling with in, in my own work, right? How to get these compound disasters or events into the same frame of of focus, right, in in order to be able to study them better. And the way that I've recently started approaching this is, again, following data practices, because I think often we do treat these as discrete events or our systems treat these as as discrete events. Um, But the moments in which the boundaries or the distinctions between, let's say, an earthquake and a pandemic or the pandemic and uh, racial justice protests, uh, the moments that these uh, distinctions are are eliminated or erased, uh, I think raise really interesting and oftentimes problematic uh, issues. Right. And, and the ways in which we see these distinctions being erased are often through like, some of the data companies that I look at, right? Because if you can say that you know, this data that I have access to will help you respond, not just to a pandemic, but also to uh, you know, rioting or any other kinds of disasters, then there's a lot more profitability um, in this kind of work. And so what I've been calling this recently is following crisis data. And I use the term crisis really specifically because that's what a lot of these tech companies use um, to describe data about, you know, again, the pandemic, about earthquakes, about tsunamis, about also things that we might not necessarily recognize as crisis. So there's a company I follow called Data Miner. Um, they're a startup that's connected to Twitter in some ways. And what's really distinctive about them. Is they have access to Twitter's uh, firehose API, it's called, which is really all the data that's produced on Twitter. They have instant access to it, right? And they market their access to this data as providing crisis advantage for companies. Um, and that's a new way in which this kind of data and crisis data is, uh, new kinds of profitability that are arising around them, right? Because they're saying, you know, we're, we're, totally plugged into all the information produced on Twitter. We can tell you before anyone else knows that a crisis has arised and it doesn't matter what kind of crisis it is. It could be the next pandemic. It could be, you know, someone in your store said something racist to a customer. That's another kind of crisis that they recognize as threatening companies. It doesn't matter what kind of crisis it is. These are all the same thing for us and we can provide this service of preparing you for it and giving you crisis advantage instead of competitive advantage over your rivals, right? So ways in which you can adjust and make your own company profitable uh, before your your rivals can. And so I think in that way, following data practices, you can see in practice how these distinctions are blurred, but often not in ways that would be satisfying for you know people like us, like disaster researchers, but really often um, to advance profitability. Of different companies.
0: I'm just going to pause there for one second. Are you telling me that the the sort of cutting edge of what I've been calling compound disaster research are companies that are really they're marketing that so that um, at companies that are trying to provide brand integrity and I suppose supply
2: chain resilience. I mean, is that that's what they're selling? I, I think so. Right. And some of them, you know, operate with private companies, but also with uh, like the preparedness arms of the U.S. With government. With government. Yeah. Yeah. Like we need to be prepared by having interoperable systems right? because we live in an age of perpetual crisis. And this is why things like 9-11 were really important. Right. Because uh, all the different arms of government that you need to respond to the specific uh, attacks on the tower. But then also the kinds of public health resources and law enforcement resources that were needed to coordinate uh, the response to like anthrax. Um, you know, in practice in these times, a lot of frictions were involved, a lot of inability to share data yeah. across these different arms of government. And so that's really driven the demand for the kind of work that will eliminate these boundaries and, and sort of treat everything as a potential crisis.
0: Kim, I to give you a chance to comment on any of that, and also your own take on this compound problem. Jason, as usual, has given me a lot to think about.
1: I think I want to put a question back to Jason and ask how we're most, how we can make sense of this um, kind of the the reach for interoperability that you've described for kind of crisis edge. Um, be, one, one question I have is, why aren't we seeing the effects of that at the local level, where still, for example, public health agencies run in parallel to agencies charged with environmental protection and agencies charged with educating our children? Like, they're not interoperable yet. And and so what is it in the design of the data infrastructure or the workflows and the data practices that orient that towards profitability rather than uh, governance. And so I guess what can we, where are are you already seeing the effects of this trend in kind of practice uh, within the for-profit sector? And what can we learn in, I mean, because it is, it's really um, ironic. We need more of this. Um, I, you know, all of us as disaster researchers are tired of the claims of surprise when disaster happens. And so, you know, again, the kind of what kind of preparedness and what kind of knowledge infrastructure will allow us to be prepared in a way um, that is responsible to um, a robust social contract?
2: Yeah, and I'll say briefly on this, at least, my sort of ongoing hypothesis is that the values that are built into these kinds of systems really are oriented towards not just profitability, but also law enforcement. So where you see the, the kinds of really responsive data action is in mostly law enforcement, right? Where large amounts of data are gathered on, as we saw during the George Floyd protests, on protesters um, and then operationalized there. And again, a lot of these companies like Data Miner. Uh, was offering its services to HHS at the same time as it was providing data to local law enforcement agencies to respond to their uh, protests during after the killing of George Floyd. And I, I think it's just that much of the money and resources in this country goes towards like those law enforcement priorities as opposed to you know community public health. Um, and that in and of itself brings up a lot of problems, right? Because should our response to these various crises be the sort of law enforcement or securitized approach? Um, and is that all data is good for? Can we imagine ways in which data can be operationalized towards uh, less punitive, but more beneficent government uses? Uh, I think those are some of the questions that that are ongoing, um, and how can we create barriers between this, this punitive arm and, and beneficent uh, data solutionist arm.
0: I want to shift over if we if we can because um, I wanted to um, at, Kim, did you want to follow up?
1: Sure, I had a quick question. Jason, yeah. in your opening remark, you referred to an earlier period where you characterized something like the figure of the unemployed was done with more care and oriented towards, it sounded, your tone suggested, towards the well-being rather than the incarceration of that employed figure. And just give us a little sense of what that kind of data practice looked like, and in part, because we need to be educating our current students to extend that that kind of um, data practice.
2: Yeah, I think, um, so the the specific project that I'm talking about there, it was called the Job Service Matching System. And this was a computer program that was designed by the Labor Department in the early 70s. And it was specifically designed to match unemployed Americans with open jobs. Um, and what I wanted to emphasize there is that, you know, today we would approach this problem through gathering data from, from uh like employer databases and employee databases and kind of mashing this together until we found the perfect match. And what they were interested in was really designing an in-house system in the labor department uh, in which they had full control of how data was designed. And the reason why they wanted full control of how data was designed was in order to, in a way, protect the population that they were serving, right? So one of the big barriers to employment was racial discrimination, and so what the labor department decides to do is de-racialize its data, right? Since they own all of it and, and manage how it's uh, produced, they can take off racial classifications uh, from, you know, an individual applicant's uh, data profile. And their idea there is that we're protecting um, mostly black. Uh applicants to jobs because now employers will see them in a way that's more than skin deep, right? We've defeated the racial discrimination problem. And in a way, this is very naive, Uh, but the larger approach, the sense that you could use computing to protect vulnerable populations in a way that wasn't available, say, if you just had people going into offices, I think that larger ethos, there's something really important about that that's gone away from At least how these things are practiced. I think a lot of activist communities still have a sensibility about the need to uh, design these kinds of protections into our systems. Mm -hmm.
0: Let me take a second just to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls, and um, I want to get another couple of questions in here in the time that we have left. Um, This could easily be a 10-hour conversation instead of a one-hour conversation, but we're putting a lot on the table here. Um, Laurie, let me start with you on this. um, been thinking a lot about the communities all of us do most disaster researchers mm-hmm. across disciplines do um, community situated work in one way or another, all um, of them often very collaborative work um, and so you know we have seen in in recent years um, the problem of fatigue. In communities, I mean, even in Fukushima, where it becomes so uh, acute that the government steps in and sort of limits the degree to which disaster survivors can be, um, you know, um, featured in work that they can collaborate. So I wonder, you know, so that's one place. That's Japan. You know, that's one part of Japan, or maybe it's you know, coast of Gulf Coast, United States. This is the whole world every community in which people have been doing disaster research in a community situated way. These communities have all been struck by the pandemic in varying ways. What are you seeing in your own work or the communities of researchers that you work with and how they're taking stock of fatigue in the communities where they work, the methods they may be adapting to be respectful at this time, but also the binds that we're in is we want to collect important perishable data. We want to try to serve those communities with important findings. What are you tracking?
3: Yeah, I think, thank you for raising this question. I think it's absolutely critical. And I think one of the things that really has um, happened in our research community are really serious conversations around ethics, the ethical orientation to our, our work why we do the work we do, where we do the work, who we're studying, why we're studying them and and so forth. And so I think that um, that that focus on ethics has been really crucial during this time in particular. And so I just want to say that that generally and really give a nod to our colleagues who are thinking carefully about the ethical um, ramifications of the work that we do. Um, but then I want to take this really, really specifically to what's happening here in in Boulder County, Colorado, where we just recently had the horrific wildfires, 10th most costly in national history, most costly in our state history. Um, tens of thousands of people evacuated on the on uh, New Year's Eve and, and so forth. And so but one of the, the conversations that emerged, immediately emerged here is we're now coming up on the one year anniversary of the mass shootings. Here in Boulder, Colorado, the pandemic's ongoing. The wildfire effects are still unfolding. Uh, The 2013 floods, the recovery is not even complete from those floods. And we also are coming off of last year's wildfire season, which was the largest wildfire in our state's history in terms of landmass occurred last year in an adjacent county. And so that's just to give sort of one example at a very geographically specific locale where I happen to live. And that's unfolding right here, right now. And that's having ramifications on researchers, our local emergency management infrastructure in terms of their capacity to support and be a part of research, even though they respect it deeply and have expressed that many times, it's just not the priority right now. Um, And then on top of that, of course, at the center of all this are the people, the people who this is affecting their lives. And so the fatigue is real. The recognition of the fatigue is real. And it's part of the conversation here. What to do about it is the open question.
0: Kim, do you want to speak to that?
1: I, I think that I'll return to, you know, there's many different ways to do community collaborative research, and I think it's important to remember that because
3: mm-hmm. there
1: can be a, a kind of romance for community collaborations that suggests that other kinds of research aren't needed. Like unless it's community-led, then it's not good for the community. And I, I don't think that's right, in part because of the cross-scale production of harm at the, at the local level. And I think one direction you see in all of the attention to environmental injustice in the U.S. is really at risk of hyper-localization. You know, you characterize a disadvantaged community and you 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 deal with it within its bounds, and though and thus don't attend to all the trans-local drivers of harm at that local level. Um, nonetheless, I think that something that we've um, returned to during the pandemic period especially, is in many of the communities that we're working with in on environmental justice research, they have research questions to try and figure out really specific things within the cross disasters that Lori referred to. Um, and one good example is in two communities that we're working on, one in California and one um, in uh, Louisiana, They're both trying to figure out how to get their local governments to be accountable and take an equity based approach to rescue funds. And so they've asked us, like, what's an equity based approach look like? And it's like, hmm. well, and so and we can at least like scan the landscape and say, what are people saying? Um, What, you know, we can kind of bring resources into their um, deliberative processes and, and strategization. And another example is that given the acceleration of the petrochemical industry driven by the shale gas boom uh, during all of this, all of the communities that we're facing, we're working with are facing the permitting of new hazardous facilities in the middle of all this. And so the question of how do you push back on something very specific, like a permitting process that is controlled at the state level, not the local level? And so kind of listening for, they have their own research questions and they're actually really challenging research questions for us too. And so in this stage, the kind of really letting the community put the questions forward that we all need to work on has been um, a really powerful place to work.
0: So we have just a few minutes left and uh, I'd like to do a quick round. Actually, I I could have started with with this question and maybe I should have, but it's, it's tied to what I was just asking. And, and it's, it, Lori, I think you just alluded to it, you know, disaster researchers are also in this world. Um, we're not outside of it. And um, so we're all impacted by what's been happening. And this disaster has been moving slowly, unevenly, um, very close to people's lives. Um, many people in the research community that I'm connected with have had COVID or have long COVID. Um, So I wanted to ask you just a sort of general question, Jason, like, how are you doing? (laughs) I mean, I should have started with that, like, but, but in a a general way, like, how are you and your people doing and, and how are you, how are you finding some way to relax
2: and get outside of disaster? It's also, it's an important skill to survive in this business, I think. Yeah, I'd say that's actually one of the most important lessons I've learned uh, (laughs) during this whole process is you know, I need to spend a bit more time outside of disaster uh, doing other things that just sort of take your mind off of it. So, like, I've joined a soccer team. And that's that's helped at least, you know, two hours a week just to get out of thinking about these really sort of anxiety-producing issues. Um, the other thing, though, that I think is really important is, like, there's created, a, it's created a new sense of solidarity, I might say, amongst particularly early career researchers who want the work that they do to really crucially uh, be within the conversations about what's going on in the world today, about the kinds of disasters and crises that are already affecting us or that threaten us. Um, And there's a lot of desire and energy around doing this kind of work. Uh, And I think I get a real sense of comfort out of that solidarity. I think any illusions of us being involved in some ivory tower profession at this point, I think have mostly been dispelled. Um, and people really want to make work that's has a difference or makes a difference in the world. And, and that I think still motivates me. Mm-hmm. I want to be on that soccer team. Uh, Kim, what about you?
1: I, I've asked this question a lot cause I'm not particularly good at stepping outside, um, of disaster and, uh, Our work as research and educators, which doesn't mean I don't think we need to join soccer teams. We should. Um, But I think I've reminded myself often over the last few years of just the power of humility. And what my dad used to tell me, he was a small business person, it's like, put in a good day's work and do it in a way that gives back. And, you know, it's kind of like, you're not going to save the world. But just, you know, and so recognizing that um the kind of um daily commitment of working towards um inclusive prosperity. Um that's that's what we need to be doing. And I, I think the urgency of all, there is this kind of call for flamboyance that actually is really um demoralizing. And so just kind of settling down and putting in your day of work, I think is a really effective place to be.
0: Lori, can you give us your thoughts on this? And it'll, it'll be the final word for our conversation today.
3: Yeah, I just just thank you so much. And um, I I guess my answer would be just this pandemic has so revealed our our, once again our interconnection to one another the interconnections in this world and i think waking up every single day and recommitting to doing what i can do to foster those connections to see those connections and where i see them fraying even more to try to repair them in whatever small way because how are we going to find our our way out of this but through um repairing and restoring and reigniting and creating new connections. So I think that's where my mind went with that beautiful question. So thank you again for having us.
0: You've been listening to Restoring Memory, a special episode of COVID Calls. And please uh, rejoin this uh, marathon of COVID Calls with the next episode starting at 6 p.m. Eastern time when I'll be talking with David Brick, um, who will come back and he's going to perform dance for us um, and so please do come back for that. And I just want to thank my brilliant friends, Jason Ludwig, Lori Peek and Kim Fortune for this really inspiring and important hour. And, um, I look forward to working with you all at this pandemic is not over. Uh, this isn't the last word. So I like the way Jason put it. We're all on the soccer team together. Solidarity. It's good to be with you. <laughs> thank you, Scott. Thank, thank you. For Stay healthy. Everybody we will see you next time on COVID call.